Hello and welcome to Conversations On, where the YMCA of the North talks with local and national leaders about their experiences, their insights, and their aspirations, helping people from all walks of life live better. I'm Rashini Rajkumar. Today, CEO Glenn Gunderson chats with Nate Burleson, former Vikings wide receiver and current co-host of CBS Mornings. Find out what's even more important to Nate than his 11 seasons and 43 touchdowns in the NFL. Hey, Nate, so good to be with you. And it has been fun to watch your meteoric rise. Did you envision this for your career post-football? Wow. I didn't. First, let me say thank you. I appreciate you having me. Um, really been looking forward to this conversation. I mean, I appreciate the compliment. It does seem meteoric. Um, I have been an individual that um, has followed media closely throughout my career. Um, and people don't realize like, during my career, I worked closely with the local media, um, whether it was um, the radio stations, the local news, um, even some national stuff with ESPN and NFL Network. So I've been strategically um, setting up my exit strategy from the NFL. I just didn't know it would happen so quickly. Um, when I played, I didn't look at myself as your typical NFL athlete. Um, you know, I was a guy that was heavily interested in investing. You know, I owned a restaurant and I was also an artist and I wrote poetry on the side. Um, I started a few businesses in the fashion and music industry and also helped launch a firm that that assists athletes in investing their money. So all of these things I knew I, I wanted to attempt. So when my career came to an end, um, I would have a plan B, C and so on and so on. Uh, but when I got into TV, I did realize that there was a void in the space, not a void for Nate Burleson. I didn't feel like I was um, any more gifted than individuals that have come before me because I stand on the shoulders of those who have done it before. I just felt like there was a void in this space for a unique voice and me being very aware of who I am, understanding what I bring to the table, how I can complement a group of people, just like I did as a number two wide receiver to some greats like Randy Moss and Calvin Johnson. I knew that there was a void in, in, in a guy that can set his ego aside, um, bring something unique on a daily basis to a show. Um, and from there, I knew doors would open. Now, if you would have told me when I retired that I'd be sitting next to Gail King on CBS mornings five days a week, I probably think you were lying to me, um, but I definitely have put the work in. So it doesn't surprise me now at 40. It just would surprise me at 33. Well, congrats. And we're enjoying watching that ride. I do want to pivot a bit and talk a little bit about race and what we've been up against, particularly in, in Minneapolis and, and certainly as a place that's been a kind of a reckoning spot for this racial and social justice movement. And I've, you told a really compelling story. I wonder if you might share uh, when you were on with us uh, on a national town hall with the YMCA about losing your grandfather before you were born. Quite yeah. a story. And as a grandson, as a father, uh, would you mind sharing? And how does that, what position does that put you in relative to the discussion we're having right now around racial justice? Yeah, you know, my father, he has been and still is in my life. So um, I didn't grow up with an absentee dad. I grew up with an individual that showed me what it was like to care for his family, um, be in the stands and watch their sons compete. Also work a nine to five plus overtime and never complain. Um, but I never had a relationship with 
either of my blood grandfathers. Um, one passed away a little bit early from a heart attack. And then my father's dad, um, I never met him. I just knew that he died. Uh, the details around his death, uh, we didn't really discuss until all of these conversations came to the forefront. And as we saw what happened with George Floyd, um, along with so many others, uh, you know, I, I was I was able to have a conversation with my father about my grandpa's. And I'm like, yo, dad, so so what are the details? What happened? And we had a very extended conversation, one of the more honest and open conversations we've ever had. He said, Nate, I was 17. I came home from school and granny, um, she looked at me and she said, your father died today. Now, at that time, um, his father, my grandfather and his mother, my granny, they weren't together. So they were living in separate places. And she was very matter of fact about it. The details around it, um, they didn't share. They spoke with the police and they said, oh, you know, there was a confrontation and then there was a struggle. And then after that, um, you know, unfortunately, he passed. My dad said he went to the morgue to identify the body. And he said, as the body slid out the drawer, the first thing that came to his head is, um, man, he has so many lumps on his skull. Mm. And and I was like, well, how did you feel at that point? He said, I knew what we were told about his death wasn't true. But this is a time where this is a young black family struggling to make ends meet. Um, do you think that they have the one, the finances um, to go hire a, a high price lawyer or even um, the knowledge of saying that we can go prove them wrong. It's it's obvious that there was excessive force. And if handled differently, maybe I would have had a relationship with my grandfather. At the very least, I would have met him and had and been able to introduce him to his grandkids, um, his great grandkids. So that was a conversation I had that really stemmed from what we were dealing with um, when it came to social injustice and police brutality. Now, raising kids, um, I have to have these conversations. My oldest is 17, Nathaniel II. Um, I, my, my second is 15-year-old Nehemiah Burleson. And then my daughter is 11, Mia Pearl. Um, and I didn't think I'd have these conversations with them at this age, but it's necessary. My son, he has his license. So I have to talk with him about how he needs to drive, what he needs to do, how he needs to respond to possibly being pulled over or questions, uh, question and how he may need to um, disarm, not physically, but disarm maybe emotionally a police officer that comes up to him and might feel threatened. Uh, and, it, and it's crazy because things, they, they, they come full circle for me. You know, I spent time in Minnesota. It's really the inception place for my career. So it means a lot to me. Um, I do look at Minnesota and the time I spent there as one of my homes. Um, and now, so many years later, my brother Kevin Burleson is on the staff for the Minnesota Timberwolves. So when George Floyd was killed, um, I remember talking to Kevin and we were on FaceTime and he was calm. But behind him, there was so much chaos. We're talking horns, cars speeding by, uh, protests, screaming, yelling, um, what sounded like gunshots off in the distance. And I'm sitting here talking with my brother and I'm saying, like, I appreciate you giving me a live report from the streets, but please get home safe. You need to get home right now. And shortly thereafter, it just seems like things started to unravel. Um, the reason I bring that up is because no matter how far you go, no matter where you move, um, there is a connection to where you've been. 
And for me, the areas that I have um, called my home, I still have this deep connection with. Where, where do you think we are now? You know, that that temporary home of Minneapolis and of Minnesota for you. And I'm a proud Vikings fan. So loved watching you play in those days. Mm -hmm. But where do you think we are in this movement? And, and how are you how are you uh, processing all this? I am an optimistic individual. I've always been that way. I am a glass half full guy, glass half full guy. I feel like we're in a better place because of the steps that we all took collectively forward. Typically, when something happens in this country to a race or a religion, um, a gender, um, you know, a, a subgroup of sexual orientation, whatever it may be, it seems like that group is alone leading their charge. Um, what we're finding out now is that whoever is dealing with something um, that collectively we feel like is wrong, we all take that step together. Um, you know, it, it seems like there were so many people sitting on the sidelines um, maybe years ago, decades ago. Um, now, don't get me wrong. There have been pockets of, of protest. There have been pockets where we stood as a country collectively. There have been pockets where regardless of your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion, we all stood for something. There have been pockets throughout history. But then there have been times where um, one group fought for themselves while everybody else stood on the sidelines. I didn't see I didn't see people on the sidelines. And it, and it didn't matter what era you're from. It didn't matter how old you were. You know, we, we give Generation Z a hard time about being te technologically driven and how they listen to music and they make TikToks. But I tell you what, that generation is bold and they speak and use their voice and they stand for what's right. And in so many ways, they led the way. Um, so I, I feel like we stood together for something. And that's why I feel like um, we are in a better place. So when something happens, um, you don't have to look around to see if anybody else is with you. It's almost like you can lock arms, knowing that you can look to the right, look to the left. They don't have to look like you, feel like you, act like you, be the same age as you, worship the same God as you, but they are going to fight with you. And, you know, we're realistic. I don't, I don't think we've seen the last of police brutality or social injustice or discrimination or racism in America. Let's not be foolish here. But I do know when something happens, um, we are going to come out by the thousands and the millions and we are going to make sure our voices are heard. Yeah, I appreciate that. Just that dynamic hope that you have. We got to talk a little bit about you and this renaissance, uh, you know, renaissance guy that you've become. And the music, the poetry, you mentioned it before, the, the broadcast career, the football. But you are a shining example for young people, young people of any background. And I just want you to share a little bit. Where did all that come from, that breadth and depth that you have uh, found yourself uh, in? I grew up in a household with four boys. Um, my mom and dad, um, they, they wanted a girl, so they just kept trying. Um, I was number three. And because of that, I feel like being somewhat of a middle child, I always wanted to express myself. So being a Leo, I didn't mind taking the stage and and captivating the room. Um, but there was something about me that uh, was attracted to the arts, um, attracted to performance, uh, being able to use my creativity to write and speak 
for myself. So all of these little things that made me who I am, this young kind of goofy, unique kid that was a lover of the arts, but also cinema that appreciated um, the great speakers from different generations and would sit and study body languages and how people deliver what they said and would listen to music and instead of paying attention to the beat or maybe the chaotic lyrics, I'd be paying attention to the words that touch the soul. Um, and then started writing poetry in high school. All of these things collectively made me who I am. The reason I bring all that up is because when I left the game, I knew that I wanted to go on the TV. I just didn't know who I wanted to be in TV. Um, it's easy to try to imitate what you saw. I remember seeing all these legends like Deion Sanders and Michael Irvin and Rich Eisen, Kurt Warner, and, uh, Stuart Scott, rest in peace, and all these different um, you know, media personalities. I tried to adopt a little bit here and still a little bit there and, and, and maybe take a piece of their flair there. And I realized that doesn't work like it did in football. Like I can study Randy Moss and not be Randy Moss, but I can maybe steal a release move or the way that he tracks the ball ever so slightly. Um, you know, his ability to push the DB to where they're backpedaling. You see the whites of their eyes and they're panicking and then you can run whatever route you run. I can steal bits and pieces of Randy's game. But when you're in TV, when you steal bits and pieces of somebody else's personality or their brand, um, you become less of who you are. So for me, uh, you know, it's about finding that individuality. And, and, I, and I did that right around year two or three. I said, you know what? I'm not going to dress like anybody else. I'm not going to talk like anybody else. What makes me me? Well, I can make things relatable. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very good storyteller. Um, you know, I, I can take something that's going on in football and I can bring in the storyline from a movie or a new album that's out or something that's very relevant in pop culture. And I can explain in a way that it is digestible uh, and still very fun to listen to. So I can talk to maybe a 15 year old, but then I can also talk to the traditionalist who's a 50 year old. So that's who I am. And once I tapped into that. I realized, man, now these opportunities are really starting to come in waves. So if I can give anybody advice, it's figure out who you are before you go into anything that you do. I think the one thing we have to do, one, is identify whatever space and place we want to be in. And then you attack that craft like Will Smith says, you beat on that craft. But after that, what do you want to be in that space? Because if you dress and you talk and you walk and you look like everybody else, will you stand out? And not only that, you are very expendable. But if you you solidify yourself in that space and then you wear what you want, you talk how you want, all the while still honoring what that job is, you'd be surprised, um, you know, how fast you rise. Yeah. Hey, Nate, bringing that back home to the YMCA. So the Y being this human development organization, this child development organization, a global footprint trying to make an impact. And for me, this is a really important time for strong leadership and for a strong why. So I would love your advice. You know, how do you think about, um, you know, what you'd like to see out of me, a middle-aged white dude in a leadership role at the why? And then I'd love your perspective on the why. What what are you looking for from from organizations like the YMCA? Well, one, I, I would like to say I appreciate what you do. Um, you do a great job, um, not only um, trying to encourage um, the youth, but also having open conversations like this um, that are really pushing forward every single cause. And let's just call it what it is. Uh, when you have two people that look different, maybe came from different circumstances, their journeys um, to life might have brought them to a point where they're standing together um, shoulder to shoulder or right now uh, 
face to face through technology, um, it sends a powerful message. Just the imagery sends a powerful message. The conversation, that's secondary, but it's just as powerful. Um, but with that said, the YMCA just continue to pour into the youth. And, and that's what the YMCA has been known for for years. And, it, and it's from every single aspect. Uh, of course, you know, being physically fit, that's something that I feel like, you know, every every adult should get behind um, and we should encourage kids to be that and do that. But then there's so many other layers to the development of the youth. We're talking the arts and crafts, the music, um, speaking into their spirit so that they become better, well-rounded young adults. Because you know how it is. There's a certain point in your life where these kids are so heavily influenced by the world around them that if we catch them at the right time and pour into them the right stuff, they will become the right type of adults. Um, and, and I think what the YMCA has done for so long is figuring out ways um, to make sure that we are creating the next great generation of men and women. Um, and then also the evolution. The YMCA has evolved with time, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, what these kids might be interested in versus what they were 10, 15 years ago. I, I had a conversation um, last week and it was with um, some individuals talking about the youth and it was something very powerful. Um, actually, you know what? It was Mahershala Ali, who is an actor, and he was talking about uh, the, the different things that we should do for our kids. And he said, just be present, be present for them. Um, and, and, and that will go a long way because as adults, we get so caught up in our lives, we forget to be present in theirs. And then we had an author on our show on CBS Mornings, and this is really what I want to get to. Um, he said, you have to be willing to adjust. Don't put your own needs and wants in front of what your child might be interested in. And I think that's powerful because you know, the YMCA has done it for years, being able to adjust in real time with these kids, whether it's the interest in social media, technology, um, music, movies, arts, culture, all of these different things. A kid doesn't walk in and YMCA says, OK, let me strip you of all the things you love. No. YMCA, YMCA says, let me invite you in and let me find out what you're interested in and let me see how I can cultivate that and put you in a position to be just that and more when you have a chance to. Man, I got to have you as a spokesperson here at the Y, Nate. That was impressive. How do you think about your role as dad? So here you got this crazy schedule, right? I'm, you're yeah. getting up early, um, getting on air, and you've got all these additional appointments and things going on. I'm just curious, how 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 do you, um, you, you talked about not putting on what it is that you're passionate about onto your young, young people. And I'm passionate about basketball. My son happens to play. You're yeah. passionate about football. Do your kids play? How do you cultivate that? And, and talk a little bit about your role as dad. Well, being a father and a husband, um, they are the two most important jobs that I have. And I am busy. Um, you know, at one point here in New York, in New Jersey, I was juggling five jobs and working all five um, you know, on a weekly basis. Um, but I realized that if I don't plug into the source that gives me the best feedback, that gives me the best energy, that gives me the power that I need to recharge my battery, then I am going to be worse off for it. I won't be as good on TV. 
I won't be able to have the same passion. I won't be able to wake up every day with the same optimistic standpoint. Um, and I realized that's my family. I have to plug into my family. And having that responsibility of making sure my kids are the most well-rounded, that's the biggest thing. You know, people oftentimes think because I play football, well, you know, you want your kids to be in the NFL. Well, I think they can be in the NFL. I don't want them to be. I don't need them to be. I want them and need them to be good people. I can care less about who they are as athletes. Um, being an athlete is like having icing on the cake. I mean, those 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 steps are ordained. I mean, it's written. So whether they will or they won't, I feel like it's it's already in the stars. They just have to go grab it. But what's most important before, during and after, what type of men am I raising? What type of daughter will I mean, what type of woman will my daughter become? Um, and that's why when I go speak to their teachers and their coaches, them saying, oh, well, he's a great athlete and I love watching him on the football field or the basketball court or your daughter playing tennis. That's fine. I shrug that off. But when they say your daughter is very helpful, mm -hmm. she's always looking for somebody to lend her hand to or your son is very polite. He is a great student to have or your oldest. He makes everybody feel comfortable. He's more of a people pleaser than he is a selfish individual teenager. Um, that's what makes me smile. Uh, because I know like it's 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 the it's the seeds that we plant that we hope will blossom into something special. You know, I, I, I don't know what they're going to turn out to be athletically, but I have a hand in what they are going to turn out to be as a as an adult. Hmm. So uh, do you have any aspiring storytellers or broadcasters of those three kids? You know, my daughter. Footsteps? Yeah, my daughter. You know, uh, my boys, uh, they love sports, of course. One wants to be an engineer. The other one wants to go into technology. Um, so I think they have their career paths um, planned out, whether it's, uh, you know, academically related or sports related. My daughter is a great student, uh, but she is a big, bright personality. As you can tell, I grew up very imaginative. Um, I used to talk to my stuffed animals. I would tell <laughs> stories. I would, I, would, I would write stories. I would write poetry and write songs. Um, I would record into my boombox my voice over a beat and like act as if I was dropping an album. So I was this very uh, theatrical kid and I would see things cinematically. I walk into my daughter's room and she is just like this little chocolate version of me. And that's it. She, I, I open her diary and it's these impressive like songs and short stories. And she draws just like I did. And she talks to herself. And life is so, so grand. And um, oftentimes I, I, I adopt like the way she sees things because, you know, as an adult, we can be we can become callous because the world kind of like beats on us. And then we realize, you know, when we talk to our kids that they have this perspective that we once had and we need to make sure that light never dims, because if it dims too much, it's going to be all forever. Um, but, yeah, my daughter, she I, I was working with extra for a long time and one of the. The stipulations within the contract was if we did interviews that were kid friendly, my daughter could sit in on them. And we interviewed Gal Gadot together um, for Wonder Woman, Ryan Reynolds for a kids movie that he did, and Michelle Obama, which was awesome. So uh, she has a little bit of a resume. I'm trying to give her a taste of what she may want to do. But in about, let's say, 10 to 15 years, 
Um, hopefully I'll be retiring and I can usher into my seat on the shows that I'm on. Yeah, she's going to she's going to step right into your seat for sure. Right. Um, she'll rule the world. How do you um, what goes through your mind when the lights come up bright sitting in that CBS studio? That there is a responsibility and obligation to give people what they need, which is the stories, the storylines, the news, not just locally, globally, um, but it, it, it's personally as well. Um, also, understanding that there is um, this front row seat that I have to history um, and I get to witness it firsthand with some of the best researchers, reporters, journalists, um, hosts in the business. Um, and my job is to take the baton of information and pass it on to the viewer. Uh, that's literally every day. You know, when we're doing sports shows, um, it's not as heavy of a heavy of a burden. You know, you know, sport is life in nature. So, you know, if I'm showing up and tell you about the crazy game between the Minnesota Vikings and the Detroit Lions, and now the Detroit Lions finally got the win with a last second, like. I can I can give you that same type of energy, that same type of enthusiasm and read you all 16 highlights. But when it comes to the news, um, there are levels and layers to the, the, the delivery of it. So, yeah, if, we're, if we have a great story and we're talking about something fun. Yeah, I'm going to give you all of that personality and I'm going to make you feel like I'm sitting right next to you with my arm around you. And I'm going to tell you how that kitten stuck in a tree was saved by the firefighter and all was well in Smallville, USA. But if we're covering heavy topics like school shootings or tragedies because of an earthquake or a hurricane, you know, I have to be able to give you that um, while uh, keeping it together because I'm a little bit of an empath too. So it's not always easy to deliver some news that is like in real time breaking your heart. Um, so there is this responsibility and I have to get my mind right for it. I get to set early, you know, we're not on till, till seven. You know, I like to walk in around 5.55, six, kind of breathe it in, relax, um, go over the script, try to figure out if there's any changes. Um, and then capture the mood of what I'll be delivering that day. So um, it's 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 been a little bit of a whirlwind, to be honest. Uh, but uh, I, I'm I'm thankful for the position that I'm in because at this point in my life, what I talk about is what I talk about at home. You know, I've been doing football for so long since 14. I retired when I retired that. When I would come home, I would detach from the sport. I'm not going to come home and keep talking about the crazy catch that DeAndre Hopkins had or how good Justin Jefferson is. Uh, you know, I'll leave that in the studio because I need to decompress. But, you know, the age I am, I come home and I'm talking to the wife about the dip in the stock market or, you know, we're talking about, you know, the education system and and the things that they're keeping in schools and pulling out of schools. We're talking about the political landscape and who we might be voting for locally or nationally. So um, I'm, I'm glad that I get to work in a job in a space that I'm heavily interested in on a daily basis. Yeah. Hey, I've got one last question for you, and I'd love to just for you to expound on what gives you hope um, as a leader, as a storyteller, as a father uh, in all of your roles. Um, why are you hopeful? 
think because love is something that is transferable and um, even though there is hate out there, if you look at the scoreboard, love is up. We're winning. Um, and, you know, when you look at this younger generation, we have to understand as adults, the more that we love, and this sounds like something out of a Hallmark card, but I truly do mean it. The more that we love the youth, the more that they will love each other as they get older. And then the divisiveness in this country will slowly dissipate. And, 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 and those who hang on hate and hang on the disconnection and hang on tearing this country apart, they will become dinosaurs. I mean, they will be so recognizable in public that we will be able to spot them out within seconds. I think what happened for so long is, is that those that weren't on the side of love could blend in. And we didn't recognize that they were just wolves in sheep's clothing. But now we see, like we see hate, we see pain, we see heartache. Now that we can recognize it and stand in love together, we are going to outnumber them. And before you know it, we're not even going to be competing in the game. It would just be love on the scoreboard. Hey, I got to say, Nate, I have loved uh, being with you in studio today. You've just been such a great, great individual to hang with. And we appreciate you enjoying watching your career. And thank you for your comments today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So much love and authenticity. And Glenn, really great questions. You got to the bottom of a lot of things. Thank you for joining us for Conversations On, where the YMCA of the North engages local and national leaders, helping to inspire you.